Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Today, we live in an age of deception. Words and appearances mislead. Con artists prey on the unwary. In this world of swindlers, one must rely on one's wits to survive. How then to guard against the duplicity that lurks behind every smiling face? Look to your kin, keep your possessions close, and trust no one. But first, read the book of swindles. In Zhang Jing Yu's work from the late Ming Dynasty, you'll encounter swindling concubines, clever commoners, and even eunuch cannibals trying to regrow their members. Christopher Ray and Bruce Rusk, both associate professors of Asian studies at the University of British Columbia, have recently published the Book of Swindles' first English translation. Congrats on the new book, and welcome you two to China Econ Talk. So, before we jump into this book, I'd love if I could just get quick stories from both of you two of what drew you to to studying、uh, Chinese history and Chinese literature. Sure. Well, this is Bruce. I have been well. I've been at it for a while, but I got interested in actually the Question of how people know what's genuine, how people know what's reliable, either in texts or in things, and、uh, found that the late Ming, in particular, when this book comes from, was a fascinating period for that. So I looked at textual forgeries, fakes of all kinds of material artifacts, and how people talk about and think about fake people, and so.、Um, That really、uh, came together in looking at this particular collection of stories. This is Chris here. I got interested in the Book of Swindles partly. I was introduced to it by Bruce. I had done an earlier book about laughter in China, in modern China in particular. I was curious about how the history of laughter differed in China from anywhere else. And one chapter focused particularly on hoaxes and these modern trickster figures, like why in 1920s Shanghai. Where you have all these tricksters appearing as kind of culture heroes, and so when Bruce told me about this late Ming work called the Book of Swindles, I was really fascinated. And when I read it, discovered it's a it's a fascinating book, mostly about commercial fraud, but also people swindling each other for sex, for status, and for other things. So we decided to collaborate on this translation. So could you two、uh, walk us through the genre of this book and?、Uh... Go a little more in depth about the、uh, the title and the and and the word for swindle. Sure. So the Chinese title of this book, actually, there's several titles. One of the longer ones is Jianghu Lilan Du Pian Xin Shu, which you could be tra- could be translated as a new book for foiling swindles based on experience on the rivers and lakes, or kind of in the wide wide world. And this idea of the rivers and lakes is a Chinese concept that kind of means The murky realm in between civilization and order, and、uh, the court, and the wilds outside of civilization. It's a realm where you can't quite tell who's who. And so Zhang Yingyu collected this、uh, collection of stories, supposedly based on his experience encountering all types of social types: merchants,、um, ladies of dubious origin, and.、Uh, Also, of course, swindlers and crooks out on the road. And it's one of the interesting things in terms of language that happens in this book is you do have the term "pian" in the title. "Pian" in Chinese today does mean to trick or to swindle or to deceive somebody. But in the Book of Swindles itself, you don't hear about "pianzi," tricksters or 
con men, like you talk about in today's China. The term he uses is actually gun, which can mean cudgel or guanggun, like a bear cudgel or a bright cudgel. And he uses this in a kind of broad sense to talk about any type of criminal element who uses violence or ingenuity to get what they want. And in terms of the genre of the book, it's a little bit unique. It's a collection of individual stories, of which there were quite a few at the time. And in some ways, it's similar to the stories about famous judges, magistrates like Judge Bao, that were quite popular at the time, with the important difference that here the heroes are, if there are any, are not the magistrates. The crime is usually not solved by a brilliant civil official, but it's either not solved at all and the person gets away with it or often is uh, foiled by someone else who is also from this world of the rivers and lakes and has the ingenuity to see through it. So it resembles that genre and it resembles some of the other fiction written at the time, which talks about the lives of ordinary people, but it is um, rather a unique book. It's probably, as far as we know, it's the first book of swindle stories, of stories of this kind of deception from uh, China. And um, I would just add that one other genre that's useful to think about is detective fiction, right? We're all familiar with Sherlock Holmes, but one important difference is that in the Sherlock Holmes story, you often don't know who the murderer is or who the crook is till the end. And so there's a type of suspense there. In the swindle story, Zhang Yu often tells us who the swindler is and who the crook is. And so the aesthetic is more, you want to find out what's, how he did it. You know, how was the swindle perpetrated? Not whether a swindle was perpetrated or who it harmed, but how, did, how was it done? Great. What do we know about our, our author, uh, his intended audience? And then if you guys can talk a little bit about the moralizing, which sometimes seems more in favor of the crook than the, than the victim. Sure. Well, we know very little about Zhang Yi other than what's in the book itself. We don't have anything else by him. He's not mentioned in any biographical sources from the time. And what there is, even within this one volume, is actually contradictory uh, as to such basic things as his place of origin. So the book was published in Jianyang, a commercial printing center in Fujian province, that was known for producing cheap uh editions that were spread, uh, disseminated throughout China. And one part of the book, one uh, part of the preface, suggests that he was from that area. Another, and the heads of each of the chapters, says he was from Zhejiang province um, to the northeast. And we don't know which is true, um, but it does seem like he was probably from Fujian because there is, or at least he lived there for a while, because there's quite a bit of Fujian dialect in the stories, but also because a lot of the stories are set there. And um, perhaps more importantly, he is very much tied to the merchant world of um, the networks that ran throughout southeastern China, largely on the waterways. And to he addresses himself to the merchants who uh, traveled those roads and waterways, rather than to other social classes like, say, the literati or even peasants. He's very clear in some of his uh, notes that he adds to the stories that he is talking to his fellow merchants. Great. So uh, how did this text make it to us today? This is a text that's 
again, mysterious in some ways. We don't know too much about the author. Uh, we do have a few copies of it from the Ming Dynasty that seem to be based on the same edition, and then maybe one publisher in Jinyang sold the wood blocks that, it was, that they used to print it to a different publisher who just changed the name of the publisher and released a new edition, uh, or a new copy. And some copies survive in Japan. We know that this is a book that circulated in Japan. And in fact, you have some stories from the Book of Swindles appearing in Edo novels. And it, had, uh, it was translated into Japanese. It seems to have actually circulated in uh, Japan, perhaps even more widely than in China, for a, a few hundred years. And we, we have a 1980s edition that it suddenly reappears in a reprint. And then there's this explosion of interest in Zhang Yingyu's works in the, in the past 20 years or so. And you have many, many new editions appearing. And you even have new collections of swindle stories appearing in China where they'll compare one of Zhang Yingyu's stories to a contemporary swindle and say this is like an updated version of an old scam that was being practiced in the Ming Dynasty. But there's a lot of questions about what happened in between. We do know from, I've been collecting new collections of swindle stories from the late 19th and early 20th century, where you do find similar stories, and some that are based on the exact same scenario. So these stories did circulate maybe through other literary texts. You do find uh, similar swindle stories appearing in, for example, Rulin Waishu, The Scholars, a really well-known Qing Dynasty novel. But uh, it still requires some additional detective work to piece it all together. Sure. So before we jump into the uh, the stories themselves, could you talk a little bit about the translation process, um, the the writing style that Zhang Yingyu used, and maybe any particular challenges you guys had to overcome in, in getting this into English? Sure. The stories are written overall in a fairly simple literary Chinese, or what's sometimes called classical Chinese. So it has the, a fairly rigid syntax. It's a little bit different from the language that people would have spoken in their everyday lives, but was probably quite readable to a moderately educated person. The stories are, in some ways, uh, fairly straightforward to translate, although some of the terminology was a little bit uh, tricky to track down. So, for example, when Zhang Yingyu uses uh, Fujian dialect terms, um, and also to uh, make the translation a little bit more lively. In some cases, we had to play with the language. For example, there are some interesting bits of doggerel verse that we had to find felicitous renderings of, uh, which wasn't always easy, but it was a fun process. So our basic uh, mode of translating or co-translating was we read all of the stories, or over 80 stories in the collection. We decided we wanted to translate about half of them, and we put down the ones we definitely want to translate because they're fascinating stories, or they have something unique and unusual about them. And then we each took about half of them, did a first pass translation, then swapped and edited each other's translation closely. And then we essentially workshopped them again and again till we were satisfied with kind of the tone and the feel. Uh, but these were, uh, these are a lot of, these stories are a lot of fun. They do have some linguistic challenges uh, for example, there's a preface that somebody else wrote that appears in a 1617 copy of the work, 
and it's written in a completely different style. It has tons of allusions and references to classical texts, so it's much more of a literati style as opposed to the kind of plainer language. But that's actually a very useful uh, text or paratext because it helps us to date the work somewhat. And so 1617 to 2017, we're talking about this is a work from 400 years ago, and this is even kind of an anniversary year. Okay, so uh, let's jump into the stories. So the first one we're going to talk through is called Swindled on the Way Out of a Court Hearing. And it's from Type 15 about government underlings. So before we walk through what happened here, could you walk us through the concept of a yamen and a yamen underling? Yes. The, so a yamen is the government office at a particular jurisdictional capital. Uh, there would be a yamen in every, what we call county or district, every xian, and also at the higher levels like the prefecture and the province. And that would be where the official in charge of that area would do all their uh, business. They would uh, be in charge of collecting taxes, but also, and this is where they show up in these stories, in charge of enforcing laws and conducting trials. Of course, they can't do it all themselves. They could have, uh, in some cases, 100,000 people under their jurisdiction. So they had a lot of local underlings. And they also needed them because there was a rule of avoidance by which officials were not allowed to serve in their home area. They had to serve elsewhere. And this meant they didn't have a lot of local knowledge. And they, in many cases, didn't even speak the local language. So these underlings were the intermediaries. They would be almost translators. They would be the people who would go out and um, arrest the um, possible miscreants or witnesses, bring them to court, and uh, take the notes at court, which meant they had a lot of power. And they could be, in many cases, bribed uh, either to um, take a case or to drop a case or to whisper in the magistrate's ear. And they were notorious, at least from the point of view of elite officials, for disrupting the proper course of justice. And so in many texts from the period, they're dangerous figures who you want to um, either bribe or uh, take, um, stay away from. For sure. So this, this story involves a framed rape and a rich man trying to get his, get his name cleared. So, so where exactly do the uh, Yaman come into play here? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about this story. I think it's an interesting one because it illustrates some things about what Zhang Yingyu's interests are and in how the swindle story works in the late Ming. So we have a, again, as you said, a framed, uh, you know, a frame-up case. We have a rich man who, whose neighbor has been trying to borrow money from him, but the man won't lend him any money. And so the neighbor decides he's going to frame him. So the neighbor has his wife accuse the man of raping her. And so they file a complaint in with the magistrate, and the, the intendant prosecutes and interrogates this man, and it goes back and forth, right? The woman has been obviously prompted on what to say in court to make this man appear guilty. They accuse each other of buying witnesses, 
they both try to bribe the judge. But the swindle in the story is actually has nothing to do with uh, that bribery or the frame-up, the false accusation. It actually happens later. So the man who's been framed gets kind of detained for a while. And a guard overhears him calling out, like, wrong, it's just wrong, you know, because this man's been falsely accused. And so this guard realizes there's an opportunity here, right? Court is not going to open until the next morning. And so he goes up to this accused man and says, hey, if you want to get off, right, you need to bribe, and I can help you effect this bribe, right? Because I, I know a relative of the intendant, and if you work through these channels through me, I can help you. In fact, this guard knows that the man is likely to get off anyway the next day, but he makes it appear that he has some influence in the case, and he essentially swindles a bribe out of this wrongly accused man. So in the end, he does get off, but, but the uh, guard, the Yaman underling, gets away with a bribe <laughs> where he essentially did no work. So, so at the end of each story in this collection, the author, Zhang Yingyu, appends a comment where he comments on what is the moral to be gained from this. Sometimes it's that this was a brilliant swindle. Sometimes he makes a more categorical statement about all women are like this. Let's just read it. Uh, let's just read it in full. So he writes in the end that Yaman underlings depend on swindling for their very livelihood. It's how they're able to live so comfortably. The volume of their swindles is beyond reckoning. Everything they swindle. Every day they swindle. Everyone they swindle. More numerous than the bamboo on the southern mountain on their swindles. You could never count them all. So clearly no love lost between our author and this, um, uh, uh, this profession. So, so if you could just talk a little more about what the, uh, the role of the moralizing was at the end of each story. Sure. So there are morals at the, or perhaps better uh, lessons at the end of each story added by the author that sometimes teach a moral lesson, but as often as not teach you something about the workings of this world of swindlers and teach you that you need to know their tricks in order to fight against them. That You have to really fight fire with fire. Uh, he praises the people who turn a swindle around back on its perpetrator for being more clever and wiser than the person who attempted to pull one over on them. And in some cases, actually, it seems like he was drawing the story from another source because at the end of the main body of the text, there's a general moral lesson about somebody getting their comeuppance because the principles of heaven uh, turned uh, out to uh, be effective. But actually, in some cases, Zhang Yingyu subverts this and says, actually, the real workings of the world are about cleverness and uh, being smarter than the next guy. And that's what really matters in the world that he lived in. Great. So um, the next story in the, in the lesson at the end, Zhang Yingyu calls the most ingenious swindle of them all. So if you could walk us through forged letters from the education attendant, uh, report auspicious dreams, as well as the examination culture, which allowed this swindle to, uh, to take place. Sure. The examinations were, of course, the main route to power for the elite, that an education and success in the national, well, initially local and then later national examinations 
were the route to officialdom and not just for an individual, but for a whole family to uh, either stay in or move into the elite. And there are a number of swindles involving the uh, examination system, including ones where there were straightforward bribes. Um, in this case, it's a complicated relationship between students and an examiner who also acted as a kind of uh, mentor, it seems, to students. But the, bri the, the trick here was not to um, offer a real bribe. It was actually to tell all of the examined students in a particular area that the examiner was uh, going to uh, foretold that they would succeed. And this came through to him, apparently, in dreams that were written quite elegantly into a series of letters, one of which was sent to each of the families of the exam takers. And they were told in these individualized letters, um, you might think of them as uh, fishing letters with a PH, that their um, their son ha was going to succeed in the next stage of the exams, and they would reward quite uh, generously the uh, messenger bearing the letter to um, celebrate their success. Now, of course, they didn't all succeed, but uh, in fact, none of them did. But in this sense, it's a victimless swindle, as uh, Zhang Yingyu sees it, because they all end up happy. They all end up, uh, at least for a moment, convinced that their family is on the path to joining this elite or uh, to further success. And this is ingenious, I think, in part because it draws on the psychology, this uh, desire for success as a family. And um, Zhang Yingyu does not see this really as too destructive, um, unlike some of the other swindles that distort, say, the marketplace or even the exams. And there are a couple other interesting things about this particular story. And one is it does illustrate that Zhang Yu is very interested in the psychology of deception. And in this case, he feels like the swindler provided a service to these families by making them happy for four months, right, until their, their son actually fails the exams. So he says, you know, whatever silver they paid out in a tip, it was worth the money. And this guy should come back and do the same swindle again. Another interesting thing is that this is one story where we do have some evidence that was it may have been based on a real case. And we have some names of people who are actual uh, historical figures. And we also have evidence from other historical records that this same scam was being practiced in the Qing dynasty over 100 years later. You actually have court case evidence for this. So this was a Maybe it was the most ingenious swindle of all because people kept practicing it. So every once in a while, um, a university sends out uh, uh, an acceptance email to everyone um, who applied. And unfortunately, nowadays, you don't get the um, four months of uh, bliss because you usually get an email three hours later saying, oh, my God, we're so sorry. I'm so embarrassed you didn't actually get in. Um, so maybe... Um, you know, in some ways, the life of a student was much harder in uh, in uh, in late the late Ming era. But at least they were able to uh, um, to enjoy 
to, to have unrealized hopes a little longer than you would be in the 21st century. So the next one I want to turn to is also has a, has an education theme called a fake freeloader takes over a con. Uh, so what happens in this one? Yeah, so a fake freeloader takes over a con is a really interesting story, partly because it deals with a well-known social type of the freeloader or the sponger. And again, so this is another example of a swindle story that has many levels of swindles upon swindles and predation upon predation. So this is another scenario where you have an examination that's about to take place. You have the chief examiner coming from a different place in order to impartially administer this exam. You have students coming from all over from different regions to take up residence for the exam period. And all of those students want to bribe the examiner, who in this case uh, has a relative or a hometown acquaintance who has come by not to do anything with the exams, but just to sponge off his wealthy and influential um, acquaintance. So this was the freeloader. So in this story, you have a real freeloader who comes to sponge off the uh, uh, intendant, the exam intendant, but he's not trying to bribe anybody. And this intendant is an honest official. He sends the man packing pretty soon. But, and this is where things get interesting, you also have a fake freeloader who shows up and shadows the real freeloader and makes it appear that he is also an acquaintance of the exam official. And then once the real freeloader is sent packing, the only person left is the fake freeloader. And so he has he connives with the Yaman underlings um, and with his own retainers and assistants to make it appear that he has an in with the examiner, and if anybody wants to bribe, they should bribe through him. And so indeed, he ends up collecting a bunch of bribes, and then he uses a, a technique of, of uh, accusing his accomplices in the Yaman of taking bribes to attract all the attention towards them, and meanwhile, he flees town. So this is a... You know, spongers are, are not unique to China. Uh, people trying to succeed in examination is not unique to China. But this is one case where you have these several layers stacked upon each other in a very interesting way. So what was uh, Zhang Yingyu's uh, lesson for this one? So he, in this case, he actually unusually comes out in the end saying that the exam system really should be about true achievement. Um, he says that only through level-headedness, true accomplishment, and genuine learning can one earn a genuine reputation. Um, and this is one of the few domains of the world that he actually seems to give a little bit of credence to, but of course it's a world that he wasn't really part of. As far as we know, um, he may have studied for the exams. Uh, he does quote the Book of Changes quite a bit, and so it's possible that that was the classic that he specialized in when he was preparing for the exams. But um, he warns people to stay away from uh, these uh, underlings and from these shortcuts to examination success. Um, although they don't seem to have worked out for him in particular because his name does not show up in the exam records as a success. 
but he does take it for granted that people try to bribe their way in. So he 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 believes that that is just the nature of the game. He just warns people against against bribing the wrong person. So now I want to turn to two of the most shocking stories this book has to offer. First, eating human fetuses to fake fasting. So this is definitely one of the more extreme uh, versions. There are a couple of stories in the collection about Buddhist monks who convince lay people of their supernatural power by going for an extended period of time without eating. Uh, but who always turn out to do it by means of some food they've hidden in their robe. Uh, in some cases, it's ordinary food, but in this case, it's an extreme uh, version of it. It's a monk who manages to uh, achieve this by taking a set of what look like prayer beads, but apparently are human fetuses that have been dried, that he reconstitutes and um, and eats, and it convinces people that he is able to survive without eating. And um, a periscopatious official sees through this, and um, it uh, discloses the scam. But interestingly, uh, we're told, he actually... Uh, rather than, say, just destroying the fetuses, he actually uses them as medicine for the poor, unfortunate, sick people in his district. Um, and uh, we also get a kind of extra story on top of this one. So in a couple of stories in the collection, Zhang Yu adds a related story on a similar theme. And this one doesn't actually involve a swindle exactly, um, but it involves a real... Uh, at least as far as Yang Yingyu was concerned, uh, case of somebody who learned techniques for living without food and only to give them up when he broke the rules about uh, sharing them with others. Um, but it does suggest that, and this comes through in some of the other stories, that Zhang Yingyu was very skeptical about the real religious practitioners of his time, but he did nonetheless believe in some things that we might consider to be magical or supernatural. And this story is an interesting one. It also helps illustrate that in a lot of the stories in the Book of Swindles, swindling is an important theme. It's a central theme. But you also have a lot of other content that is not necessarily directly related. Uh, for example, he has one story which we did not translate in which he just depends a whole book on how to tell the difference between different grades of silver. Uh, we also have these stories with a purient interest, right? You know, we have kind of gratuitous sex, uh, gratuitous kind of lurid details in other stories. And this one that Bruce just described is quite interesting, where the magistrate mounts this big public expose, and yet he, he encourages people, he allows people to try this human fetus broth to see what it tastes like. And one mouthful is enough to keep you full for a day. But yes, and then he, he turns uh, the swindling, um, I guess, object into some something used for good. And that, I guess, makes cannibalism okay. Why not? Well, to close, I couldn't let you go without bringing us to our second cannibalism story in which a eunuch cooks boys to make a tonic of male essence. And I just wanted to um, 
have a have a quote of Zhang Yingyu's uh, edit- editorializing on the unit class. So earlier we heard about how much he disliked the the Yaman officials, but the eunuchs, however, are even more excessive in their predations. They amass fortunes, brocades, and silks to them are like leaves beneath their feet. Gold and jade tile their homes. The very implements they eat with are identical to the emperor's, and they have subordinates waiting on them like the son of heaven himself. They luxuriate in every pleasure known to mankind, their only regret being their inability to debauch women. They lack that only one thing. This is why they are wont to dispatch assistance to seek out and spend enormous sums on tonics for regenerating the male organ. So if you could first talk a little bit about the role of these eunuchs in the tax system, as well as um, this horrifying, horrifying story of kidnapping and cannibalism. Well, I'll start with the, the tax system. The general normal tax system uh, would not obviously be conducted through eunuchs, but it was a way that the emperors in particular could extract more for their private purse, at least in principle. What ended up happening in many cases was that eunuchs took over um, some of the facets of imperial power and diverted resources to their own ends um, to their own, you mentioned their extravagant lifestyles as, as Zhang Yingyu sees it, and um, they would exact it in uh, particular uh, locales. They would um, have, he, some of the Ming emperors had eunuchs in charge of um, produ- producing or collecting luxury resources. And so there's certainly a worry on Zhang Yingyu's part that this is um, harmful to merchants, and what's harmful to merchants, from his point of view, is harmful to the whole realm. Um, he sees trade as essential to the well-being of the uh, whole empire. So this kind of um, abnormal taxation is uh, a big danger to merchants like him. Um, yeah, I, I imagine. I think we imagine that listeners to China Econ talk are not partic- do not wake up in the morning afraid that their children will be, will be eaten by eunuchs. However, they may spare the occasional thought for tax predators, right? Like the federal government and the like, and want to minimize taxes. And so, it is interesting in this story how you have Zhang Yu beginning a story about again eunuch cannibalism with this screed against excessive taxation and saying that it's not doing the state any good, it's not doing the people any good, it's not doing commerce any good. The only people it's helping are are the, the, essentially the frontline eunuchs and their, their subordinates. All the money's going into their pockets. My first reaction to this story was that it seemed absurd, right? That... Uh, no, no. Very few of Zhang Yingyu's readers would be in danger of having their children consumed by eunuchs. It does turn out that there were thousands of eunuchs roaming the countryside or around uh, China in the late Ming Dynasty. I think that uh, we know that they are routinely caricatured in this way, and they're considered abnormal and kind of inhuman. So this story is symptomatic of that tradition that really reviles eunuchs. And it's you know highly prejudicial. I think that comes through very very clearly. But these stories are meant partly for entertainment, and some of them do pander to common prejudices. 
in addition to providing uh, policy recommendations about taxation. Great. So a few uh, a few final questions. Was there anything you 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 really wanted to talk about that we didn't end up getting to about this this book and our author? I guess one thing that I would add is that there's kind of an inherent comparative element to this project and to this work. So you have swindle story collections in China. You actually also have swindle story collections in other parts of the world. You have them in in uh, 18th century England. You have them in 19th century and early 20th century United States, where people would compile cautionary tales about real real life swindles. So you have this kind of true crime genre, and you have other people around the world compiling stories and usually prefacing them with the claim that this is the worst that it's ever been in our country. And when you read a lot of these claims again and again, start, they start to feel a little repetitious and maybe not so convincing anymore. And everybody's saying the same thing in, in uh, different places, different times. So there's a certain uh, moral outlook that often accompanies these swindle stories that is very reductive and views the world through one lens. But uh, Zhang Yiyu himself, I don't think, quite takes that view. He does have categorical statements, again, about certain social types. He says, watch out for boatmen, right? You know, always make sure you uh, hire reliable boatmen. Watch out for brokers if you have to sell your goods in another province. Don't take a concubine from a different province. He does have uh, maxims and uh, advice like that, but it's often very specific stuff. And it's, it's usually the readers of these texts that extrapolate that, uh, you know, when you read a bunch of these swindle stories together, it makes it the late Ming dynasty look really, really dangerous. So same thing could be said about stories about, say, the American con man in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I would add, in terms of issues that uh, listeners to this podcast might be especially interested in, that the stories tell us actually quite a bit about the mechanics, the nitty-gritty of economic life in the period. They tell us how people use silver. We always read about the large quantities, the tons and tons of silver that came into China from the Americas and from Japan. But this gives us detail about how people actually use that in transactions, the complexities of things like uh, putting together payments in silver ingots and then having to, in some cases, test the ingots to make sure that they were the level of purity that was required, uh, sealing them up into sealed packets to kind of hold in escrow. Uh, we also get details about how both retail and wholesale trade worked with uh, brokers acting as intermediaries, as well as people having uh, local agents acting for them in uh, areas outside of their, their hometown. So we get a lot of the operations of commerce that we usually don't get when we look at a macro picture and we just look at the big statistics of how much trade there was. But we realize that building the kind of trust among strangers in a highly commercialized, highly mobile world uh, involves some institutions that were created not by the state, but by merchants among other merchants. And this really does seem like a book that was written 
for the traveling salesman, the traveling merchant, or the business person on the road about you know things to watch out for, maybe a little bit of entertainment to go with it, but what, how to survive and thrive when you're away from home and people you know. Uh, I I totally agree. It is a uh, truly uh, fascinating source and a really fun one to boot. So, if uh, folks enjoy this book, what uh, what other Chinese uh, text would you recommend for them? Well, if you're interested in the theme of fraud, I would definitely re- recommend Mark McNicholas's book on forgery and impersonation in Imperial China. It's a fascinating history of. Essentially, a period about a hundred years after uh, after Zhang Yingyu's work, and it goes into a lot of fascinating cases about people impersonating officials, sometimes opportunistically, sometimes with great forethought. People um, doing counterfeiting and forging of documents and currency, and a whole type of a whole array of different types of political and financial malfeasance. And for contemporary fiction from the same time period, uh, you'll find some of the same themes in quite a bit of late Ming literature. Certainly in The Plum and the Golden Vase, uh, Jinping Mei, the novel which is available in a wonderful multi-volume translation by David Roy, you'll find a lot of material culture made into part of the interaction between humans in a very complex social world and the same kind of humor and the same sense of people out to get each other constantly um, there both in the wider world and within the context of a family compound um, as well as in the uh, short stories by writers of the same time like uh, Fang Mengbong. Fraud is a rich vein <laughs> and the Chinese literature on it is vast. Wonderful. Well, I, I sincerely hope that uh, if not Netflix, ETE pick you up for a TV series deal. I would love to watch this in serial format. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Again, the book is The Book of Swindles, available on Amazon and at Columbia University Press. I encourage all the uh, listenership out there to, to go pick themselves up a copy. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.